Got questions? The Bible has answers. We'll help you find them. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast with Shay Hoodman, President of God Questions Ministries. Welcome to the God Questions Podcast. Today's episode, I've got a special guest with me, Nick Ligori, the author of Echoes of Ararat. And this book is something that's really interested in me because for so many years as a dedicated creationist, I've heard that all around the world, there are other cultures who have flood accounts in their mythology or even other parts in early chapters of Genesis that they closely match to varying degrees what the Bible tells. I've always found that very interesting and I found it to be tremendous evidence for the biblical flood account. So when I heard there was this book, Echoes of Ararat, a collection over 300 flood legends from just North and South America, this is a conversation I definitely wanted to have. So Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Shay. So Nick, um, in your research, in researching all these, what's maybe, I mean, we have the biblical flood account. Is there anything that seems to be like universally held in all the different flood accounts from myths, legends, other cultures that you've run across? Anything that everyone seems to have? Yeah, well, we've known about the existence of these flood traditions and histories recounting the flood for a long time. Uh, Josephus refers to them uh, he says that the writers of barbarian histories make mention of this flood and of this ark. And so we find these all over the world. Uh, they they match Genesis' account in so many specifics, uh, and it will vary from one part of the world to another. Mm-hmm. But they'll, they'll remember, for example, the God sending a global flood in judgment for man's sin, forewarning a, a prophet or an old man and telling him, build a great canoe, save your family and the animals. And, and the construction of this great boat, the, the coming flood, drowning all mankind. And then that great canoe, they'll say, landing on a high mountain. Then the old man sending a pair of birds to search for a sign is the flood coming to an end. They remember the raven. They remember the dove. They remember the dove returning with something in its mouth. Now, they'll change what it returned to. Instead of an olive leaf, they'll say it was a blade of grass or a, a, a branch. But we find some, um, these elements that specifically match Genesis, even coming down and repopulating the earth and a rainbow, even the Tower of Babel event happening afterward. So really, um, it's, it's the type of evidence that, wow, if Genesis is true, this is exactly what we'd expect to find all over the world. If Genesis is not true, this is the last thing we expect to find. Yeah. So I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I would guess, aside from the account of Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, Probably the second most famous one would be the Epic of Gilgamesh. But most people have heard of that and know the bits and pieces of that story. And obviously each tradition or myth or legend um, has its own cultural uniqueness to it. And um, obviously to us, we would believe that the, all these exist because it actually happened. And then over the course of thousands of years, each culture, as they're passing on the, their stories, mostly about oral tradition for centuries, if not millennia, different things crept in the story and parts of the story were lost. But the idea that there was a global flood in response to humanity's sin and that God selected one family by which to save humanity, that just seems so universal that I think it's evidence that that it points back to something that actually happened. And especially when most people don't think about North and South America as also having these flood traditions, I think that's powerful evidence because clearly for thousands of years, the First Nation people in North and South America were widely separated from anyone who could have communicated these stories to them. 
I think to me that's powerful evidence. And um, maybe my second question to you, what's something that in your research, like what surprised you the most, maybe an aspect of the story that really surprised you that it's maintained itself so well? Well, it is impressive how well these tribes have preserved these traditions. Uh, many of them don't have writing and they, to varying degrees, they've some are better preserved than others, but to see such similar points to the Genesis flood account, whether it's the, the old man being forewarned to, and told to build a great canoe or the, the raven and the dove, that, that the dove keeps coming up and they're returning with something uh, or, or they'll change it to maybe a, a beaver or a different bird. But the signature of the Genesis flood is there clearly matching. Um, I, I've been, so I've been blown away, I guess, by the volume of these. I, I didn't expect to find so many. And when I got started, I didn't know how strong the evidence would be. Maybe it wouldn't be there, but you know, Paul says we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. So if something is true, as we investigate it, we're going to find confirmation. It's going to, it's going to hold up. We're going to find evidence. If something's a lie, it's going to fall apart for examination. So, you know, I thought maybe I'd find 75, 80 blood traditions, but, I, but here we are over 300 uh, from the Americas and the, the rest of the world promises to have just as many. I think one thing that's been interesting to me is to see many of these tribes have traditions where, well, they'll, they had a annual memorial of the flood. They would gather with other neighboring tribes and offer sacrifices to, they say, the great spirit, thanking him for allowing their ancestors to survive the flood and really showing an awe and that this was something seared into their memory. <laughs> and, and so we find that, for example, in, in the Northeast, the tribes of New York had an annual ceremony. The Mandan tribe uh, of the Sioux language family, some others of the Sioux language family in the, in the northern Great Plains uh, in the Midwest have these annual commemorations of the flood and, and then complete with memory of specific things like the dove, the, uh, the Great Canoe. Uh, some of them say that the ark landed far in the West in Texas and other places, California, we find these annual commemorations. So it's really interesting. Yeah. Let me ask you like kind of the unapologetics related question. In doing some, some research and preparing for this interview and going through your book some, I ran across some who are arguing that, so with, especially like Native American First Nation food for, for the longest time did not have anything written, they have now been so exposed to Christian missionaries for hundreds of years that these flood accounts, there's no record of them predating Christian missionaries. So what has actually happened, Christians came shared the gospel, the biblical story, and the Native Americans then adapted that into their own mythology, but it actually didn't predate Christian missionaries. How, how do you respond to that argument? Yeah, that's a popular objection, and it just doesn't hold up the narrative that's out there, but that narrative doesn't fit the data. The, yeah. the sources are too early, there are too many of them. They predate not only Christian missionary and, and European arrival, but they predate Christ, even as we see with Josephus citing this ancient material going back into the BC era, uh, ancient, we have ancient rock carvings. We have, uh, ancient writings referring to the flood from, from the Grand Canyon, ancient rock carvings, uh, in Venezuela, uh, the, the Tamanacs with ancient rock carvings commemorating the flood. If missionaries are actually to the cause of these flood accounts, uh, why don't we also find traditions of famous events from the Bible, like virgin birth, like the Red Sea crossing, like the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Why is it only Genesis and these events, uh, creation, the Garden of Eden, Tower of Babel, these events in Genesis 1 through 11 that they have memory of? Um, so the, th that argument cannot account for the quality and the, the antiquity of, of the data. 
and which that was a major reason why I wrote this book is that the argument's been around too long and it, it doesn't fit the data and, yeah. and, and here's the evidence and the sources are too good. We also have signs of the genuineness of these traditions. They, they have clear native material, things consistent with their core beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, and then when we compare traditions within a language family, for example, within the coastal Salish language family of the Northwest or the uh, Algonquian language family, they're consistent. And so if they're consistent in their flood traditions, that makes it exponentially more difficult for this to have been uh, the product of Christian influence. Yeah. I, I remember we couple who used to be missionaries to Papua New Guinea attended our church for a while and they're members of our small group. And I just love listening to him talk about his experience. And one of the things he talked about is that as they were like getting to know the tribe they were with, and he, he went in fully expecting them to have a, a flood as part of their mythology. And this particular tribe actually didn't. So he, he was asking, well, tell me more about basically your creation story. And this is before he'd have any opportunity to share really anything in the Bible with them. And while they did not have a flood account, they described something that was almost identical to the Tower of Babel account to him. So no flood account, but they definitely had a Tower of Babel where the gods came down, confused the languages to prevent humanity from doing something that God or gods didn't want them to do. And he was just blown away by how similar it was for this extremely remote tribe that's had no other human contact for thousands of years, and yet they basically have the biblical Tower of Babel account. And so I, you go into that yeah. a little bit in, in Echoes of Ararat. I know it's primarily about the flood, but we need a little data on how often is our other aspects of the Genesis creation account also included. Is it just the flood primarily, or do they have a lot of Garden of Eden or Tower of Babel stories incorporated as well? Yeah, the flood is the most widely preserved one, but we definitely find memories of the Garden of Eden, of creation, of Tower of Babel, even Cain and Abel, um, these brothers quarreling and one kills the other. Mm-hmm. And and I'll be writing on New Guinea and the Pacific in, in my future second volume. Uh, we, we have found uh, several flood traditions from New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is very true that in some places we don't find the flood, but then we find the Garden of Eden. Uh, memory of, of, of that event or a memory of the Tower of Babel. In different areas, we'll, we'll have preserved a particular element that are in certain parts of the Americas. They sort of forgot the, the ark, but they remember the mountain. They, they remember Noah's raven and dove. Or another part, they'll forget the raven and dove, but they'll have a very good memory of the great canoe. And in the southeast United States, we have a very persistent tradition of the Tower of Babel. Also in Canada, we find a lot of Tower of Babel accounts. Uh, in the Pacific, we we find a very persistent memory of creation and of the creation of Adam and Eve and the woman from a rib of the man. So because of, like you mentioned, oral preservation of these accounts, certain certain details were lost. But there is there, there's a core of consistency with Genesis, which is, I think, impossible to explain other than this being a true record that we have in Genesis. Yeah. There were several of the different accounts in your in Echoes of Ararat that intrigued me. Maybe give our audience a couple of ones that you found particularly interesting as you're doing your research and putting together a couple of the from North or South America that you're like, wow, that really it blew you away with how accurate or close to the Bible the accounts were. Yeah, and I I remember when I was reading, I think it was the Cherokee tribe that I'm reading their their traditions, and I'm like, what is it? That sounded just like the 
Genesis flood. What is that doing in the Cherokee Nation's history? Let me take my glasses off and read that. Uh, no, that that's the Genesis cat. What's the Genesis flood doing in the Cherokee Nation's history? And then I would find that in the Apache Nation and all these, these tribes as I was going back to the original sources because mm-hmm. uh, I really wanted to have, I wanted to know how strong is the evidence. And so that requires going back to the original sources, documenting it, looking at the quality of the sources. Uh, one of my favorites would be the Wallapai tribe, though, of northern Arizona. They have, like I mentioned, these ancient rock carvings long predating European arrival uh, that recount the flood and it, it shows eight survivors. And in, in their tradition, they say that rains fell on the earth for 45 days. The, the waters wiped out all people with the lone exception of an old man atop Spirit Mountain. And then they say that a bird was sent out and on its second flight, it returned with grass in its beak to inform the man that blood was finally coming to an end. I like the, the Powhatan tribe, close to home for me, I'm in Virginia. They, they say that long ago there was an ancient flood and seven or eight people survived in the Great Canoe. The, the Mandan tribe, they, they remember in, in their annual memorial of the flood, one of their elders acted out the role of Numunk Munkana, who was the Noah, and he, he came and said that he was the only man that survived the flood. He landed the Great Canoe in, on a mountain part of the West. They, they refer to the turtle dove as returning with a willow branch in its, in its beak. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I've been very um, amazed by the Mexican uh, nations, Aztecs and the Toltecs and, and many minor tribes of Mexico, that they, many of them have these ancient paintings commemorating the flood and even memory of the Tower of Babel. And so we find this uh, similar things in South America. It's interesting to me also to see some of the variations that they remember there was a flood. They remember there was a garden of Eden. There was a, a woman and something was taken from a tree, but they'll kind of mix it up. And so they'll say that there was a serpent that tempted a woman and then a flood ensued or some a fruit was taken from a tree and then a flood ensued. And so it's fascinating how the memory of these different events is there. And, and at first it puzzled me, but then I, I saw that, wow, they, they remember the Garden of Eden too. They remember creation and, and sometimes they mix it up, but Again, the Genesis count, it really stands apart as it has all the elements to explain all these blood traditions uh, that we find all over the world. Uh, it truly is superior. And I don't believe that Noah passed down a record of the blood and, and Moses used that to write Genesis. What's most interesting to me is to think that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, these were entirely passed down through oral tradition or almost entirely. I mean, we've all played the a telephone game where you just whisper something in someone's ear. And by the time it gets to the seventh or eighth person, it's barely even resembles the original story. Yet here we have stuff being passed down over hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet it maintaining the essential details of an account that we, we believe based on the Bible actually happened. And to me, that's a sign of God preserving this knowledge because it's an important foundation for them to later understand God's plan of salvation. And so maybe let's go into the, the Bible and the theology of it a little more. Why do you think it's so important for us to believe in the Noah flood account? And why do you think God preserved that account so universally in different cultures around the world? Yeah. Paul says in Acts 14 that God has not left himself without witness to any nation. And I believe this is part of it. You see Paul even studying the, the witness that God left in Athens at this, this altar, uh, some of their quoting, some of their poets and, and, and saying that God has left you a witness. Therefore here's the gospel and, and, and here's Jesus. Um, so it, it plays a role in confirming the gospel. I think that in terms of what does it matter? 
because, and I understand the question. It's like, what does it matter if it, if it was truly a global flood? It's, and, and it's, it's not just about weather. It's not about the meteorology. It's, it, it actually is very significant in terms of the, the flood gets to the, actually the integrity of scripture and of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Because if we, if we lose the Genesis flood, if it was just a myth or a global or a local flood, then we're introducing myth into Genesis and we're probably going to end up with myth in, if we have myth in Genesis uh, 6 through 9, we're going to have myth in Genesis 3. And also, if we don't have a global flood, we don't have a geological event that can account for the fossils that show death, disease, decay, carnivory in the lowest layers. Now, now the flood can account for that. But if we don't have that, then we're left with a secular view and we're left with actually, we're left with death before sin. And And so if we lose the global flood... It matters. We're going to lose Adam. We're going to lose the Garden of Eden. We're going to lose the fall. Paul in Romans 5 predicates his argument for why Jesus is the Savior of the world on Adam and all of the fall. He, he cites or refers to Adam nine times in Romans 5. He refers to him in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So Terry Mortensen has said very well, if, if we have a, a mythical flood, then, we, then we're going to have a mythical Adam. We're going to have a mythical Garden of Eden, a mythical sin, uh, a mythical fall a mythical Jesus offering a mythical salvation and a mythical hope. But if Genesis, if the flood is true, then we have a true flood. We have a true Adam, a true garden of Eden, a true fall, a true introduction of sin, death, and God's judgment. And, and the flood attests to God's judgment. We have a true deep personal need for a savior, for mm-hmm. eternal life, for atonement for our sins. And, and then we have a true Jesus attested by prophecy and by the eyewitness testimony, a true savior offering such true hope and true eternal life. So that's why it matters. There's other reasons, but, but the integrity of the gospel is the most important. Yeah. Well said, well said. So I know um, we talked a little bit before that you have a, a second volume that kind of um, echoes of Ararat two, where you're kind of exploring the different flood traditions from other parts of the world. Um, hopefully come out within the next few years. So look forward to that one as well. Maybe can you give us a sneak preview? What's what's a couple of flood accounts that you found in other parts of the world that you found um, particularly interesting? Um, I mentioned that in the, the Pacific, specifically the Polynesian islands, there is a well-preserved memory of creation and of Adam and Eve, uh, even as far as Easter Island, the most remote island in the world. I've been amazed by China. China has a, a very rather well-preserved memory of not only the flood, but especially creation in the Garden of Eden. Um, that'll be coming forth. I've been amazed that Vietnam, every tribe from Vietnam has a memory of the flood. Taiwan, I'm, I'm working on Taiwan right now. Again, uh, specific, you see the signature of the Genesis flood in these, these tribes of accounts. And so I think this has value for missionaries too, to, to see that we, we have something, a, a, they're history, their nation's history has a witness to the Bible that, mm-hmm. that can open hearts and minds to the message of Jesus in, in the way that we see Paul doing in Acts 14 and 17. So Nick, this has been an amazing discussion. And again, um, we'll include links to where you can learn more about Nick and his research and of course, where you can purchase Echoes of Ararat. It's an intriguing read. And uh, Nick, I'd, let me just thank you for all the research you've done. I know it's been a lot of work, so fascinating work, but um. I'm in a sense glad God gave you this assignment rather than me because I can't imagine the amount of time you've spent putting all these accounts together and then compiling it in a book in the way you did. So thank you for that. And um, 
Thank you for your time today. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much, Jay. Thank you for everything that you do at Got Questions. So this has been the Got Questions podcast with Nick Lagoy, author of Echoes of Ararat. Got questions, Bible answers, and we'll be finding them. Your questions, biblical answers. The Got Questions podcast. Check us out at podcast.gotquestions.org.